Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Author and journalist Caroline Baum has been a fixture of the Australian literary scene for the past 30 years, dissecting the stories and motivations of some of the world's greatest writers and artists. In recent years, though, Caroline has turned her critical eye to herself, publishing only a singular memoir, a confessional tale of immigrant parents raising their only child as precious cargo, offering her a life of privilege yet under the proviso of absolute control. Good morning, Caroline. Thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, James. Now, Caroline, when we grow up, we don't really have a sense of our families are very different from others until we go and spend time with those others. And it becomes very apparent when we walk around in another person's house and perhaps open their refrigerator. <laughs> what was the, your refrigerator to you and your family? Ah, well, interesting place to start. My fridge was a microcosm of the United Nations, I suppose you could say, or certainly the European Union before the European Union existed which is a timely thing to talk about given that it's about to be dismantled. Um, my father was very, very pro the common market. He was a Viennese Jew who left Vienna at the age of 10 uh, when uh, things got a little bit hot as far as the Nazis were concerned. Uh, my mother was from Paris and so the fridge was a kind of fusion of their two cultures. Um, so there were lots and lots of pickles, which came from, I think, my father's Jewish Eastern European heritage, lots of sausages, lots of charcuterie and fromage, which came from my mother's side. And they were both um, very enthusiastic about food. My father more as a consumer and my mother as an absolutely superb self-taught cook. And so... Um, all the sorts of pleasures of the house and the harmony of the house, if you like, such as it was, uh, rested, chilled in the fridge. And when I came home from school and then later from university, I would always open the fridge and it would give me a kind of instant snapshot of how we were. It was incredibly reassuring to see those Austro-Hungarian and French elements there because they sort of reaffirmed my identity. I have to say there was not much, when I think about it, in the fridge that would have told you that we actually lived in London, except possibly for the occasional pork pie. My parents both loved a really good pork pie. <laughs> Did that go some way towards your father's um, enamoured? He was enamoured by the British. He became extremely English. I think that a lot of refugees, James, become, you know, more British or more whatever it is than the natives of the country that takes them in and adopts them. And I think that like many uh, children, refugee children who came in 1938 um, from Eastern Europe, Jewish children like my father as part of kinder transport, those children felt such a debt of gratitude to Britain that they wanted to embody the best of what was British. And so, yes, my father learnt to speak without a trace of an accent. You would never have been able to guess his origins. He could recite Shakespeare by heart. Um, 
he was in many ways sort of very, very British. And that's why I think that when towards the end of his career, he got an MBE for services to the um, uh, travel industry in which he'd been a pioneer, um, I think that there was a tremendous sense of real pride. And I remember that on the day that we went to Buckingham Palace for the investiture, we went out for lunch afterwards. And he said very, very quietly, almost as an aside during lunch, not bad for a refugee boy. And although he said it very quietly, I think it was a really profound moment for him. Do you think that perhaps summed up so much of his life, that, that struggle that he'd had of acceptance, the wanting to be, be part of something bigger? Yes, I think he was a very striving, very ambitious, driven workaholic. I think that he suffered from survivor guilt. Um, he survived in his family, his eldest sister did, and he managed to get his mother out of Vienna. So when you came as part of Kindertransport, the deal was that you came as an un unaccompanied child between the age of 6 and 16. Um, you could lobby the British government uh, to assist with extracting your parents at a later date on condition that your parents came and worked only as domestic servants so that they took no jobs from people who were employed in Britain already except as servants, which is what my grandmother ended up doing. My father did manage to extricate her. He did not do the same thing. He could not do the same thing for his father. How do you think that affected him? And I think it affected him for the rest of his life. I think, even though it sounds dreadful to say this, that he was much closer to his father than he was to his mother. I think he felt he had got the wrong parent out or he had saved or rescued the one of the two that meant less to him. He wasn't particularly close to his mother. He was very patronizing about her later on in life. He did not go to her funeral and he did not, he did not well, as far as I know, he never visited her grave. She eventually moved to America with her daughter um, and as far as I know, my father never visited her grave. And I think that he felt a tremendous amount of guilt about the fact that he couldn't save his father, whom he worshipped. He seemed to be committed to protecting the family that he had built, your, your mother, yourself, and he seemed to be very committed to making sure you had this level of abundance that he never did, which is also why I, was, I opened with the refrigerator, because mm. it seemed to be where you've said that that's where your parents kept their love. That's where they stored love. Did you ever want for anything growing up as a child? It's interesting, isn't it, that thing about the fridge? I mean, the fridge recurs later in the book because actually there's a moment later in the book where I do indeed come home, open the fridge, and the contents have changed completely. Oh, we're going to get to that. And so just sort of foreshadowing that, you know, it, um, it may have been the sort of object in the home where I went looking for reassurance and security, but that doesn't mean that it was always available when I opened that door. And do remember also that the fridge, yes, I do say that they kept their love there, but it is on ice and it is chilled. So it's not necessarily, ah, you know, my parents were warm and affectionate in many ways. They were very physically affectionate. There was a lot of kissing and cuddling and, and hugging, but there were also so many conditions. So I think of the love in terms of being chilly because it was conditional and it was conditional because it was uh, dependent on a very high level 
of compliance. So in answer to your question, I wanted for nothing in terms of physical, material, abundance, comfort, and privilege. You know, it was only, you mentioned before, going into other people's homes. It was only when I went to visit other people's homes that I saw that my arrangement, which was kind of like a suite or a wing of my own bedroom, an enormous playroom, and my own bathroom was not the norm. That when I went to um, visit friends from school, I saw that they maybe shared a room with a sibling, and that didn't appeal to me at all. And much worse than that was when I was finally allowed to go for a sleepover at my best friend's. And after dinner, she got into the bath with her elder sister, and then they invited me to join them. And I had never seen any of my peers naked before, so that was already an eye-opener. By the time two of them had got in there, the water was pretty soapy and milky, <laughs> and I was genuinely appalled and I said in very crisp but very polite tones um, I asked Antonia's parents <laughs> where the phone was and could I please make a phone call and within their earshot I said uh, to my mother please come and get me they're dirty oh <laughs> mortifying just so mortifying I feel so ashamed telling that story but it is central to my understanding of how other people lived and what a shock that was. So, you know, I was a doll. I was beautifully dressed. Um, I was a princess. All the attention was on me. The gifts at the bottom of the Christmas tree, all for me. Pale blue boxes from Tiffany's from infancy. Uh, marvelous holidays. All of that. But, you know, by the time I was eight or nine, I had started to notice that there were bars on the windows of the house. I had started to listen to the way my mother double-locked the doors whenever we went out, and I had started to understand that this great, big, very comfortable house in Wimbledon was a prison and a fortress. Were there locked doors inside? Were there places of the house that you weren't supposed to go to? Every door had two sets of locks on it which were meticulously bolted every time we went out. So there was a kind of siege mentality about being burgled, which indeed we were, despite that, a couple of times. But yes, there was one room in the house which was locked, which was a spare room where they kept luggage and uh, books that they'd read on summer holidays but didn't want to read again. That's where my father kept his Mario Puzo collection of sort of <laughs> smutty holiday reads and Harold Robbins. Looking for the um, wedding scene of The Godfather. Indeed. Yes. So that was a classic, you know, of course, um, when I was uh, ripe enough to be intrigued by this locked door, I unlocked it on one of the few occasions that I was alone and unsupervised in the house. Because most of the time when I was in the house, I wasn't just in the company of my parents, but there was generally an au pair or a babysitter. I was not left alone in the house even after my 20s. I never spent a night alone in my home until I was, you know, really quite adult. Um, and like my mother, I was afraid of the dark. So it was a big house. It squeaked and it groaned. Um, joists, joins, timber, central heating. It was a house that creaked in rather a sort of spooky way. Um, so I opened that door. I found the wedding scene in The Godfather. <laughs> I found that quite interesting and quite sort of arousing in a way that I couldn't have described or, or you know, 
I couldn't have said what that particular kind of frisson was. And next to the books that were the sort of smutty holiday reads was a collection of books of photographs of people in striped pyjamas with hollowed out faces looking completely haunted and broken. And I had no idea who these people were. I didn't know what the Holocaust was. I didn't know why we had this library of books. And that proximity of the books which were full of sex to the books that were full of death was very disturbing. How did you put the two together? I mean, this is this became very much the beginning of unravelling the secrets of your family's history. So what did you do with that information? I don't know, James, if I'm honest. I mean, I think I had a very vivid imagination as an only child. Only children do. Uh, they tell themselves a, lots of, a lot of stories. And I also had a tendency to sort of view myself as the outsider who had been given a brief to spy on my parents. And so I looked at this evidence, but I didn't quite know what to make of it. But it was my habit to uh, add two and two and get to six. So if you think of the chapter in the book called The Kennedys and Me. Well, I wanted to get to your deductive reasoning. Here yeah, my deductive reasoning is really shocking. <laughs> you know, it's a, instead of Harriet the spy, we have Caroline the spy. And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of work that you put it together. It is, and it's so convoluted and elaborate and based on such skimpy evidence. But basically, in the case of the Kennedys, the rationale was... We had no photographs of relatives at home. I only realized that when I went to other people's houses, met the odd grandmother sitting at the table and thought, I wonder what she does and what her purpose is. Or, you know, someone would refer to an aunt or an uncle and I'd think, well, I don't have those. Where have they gone? But what we did have in the house were these um, prolific, heroic photographs of JFK, who my father worshipped and in his study, a life-size bust of his handsome head. And so I put two and two together, James, and I decided that where other families had pictures of relatives, if we had pictures of this President Kennedy, then somehow we must be related. And on the 22nd of November, 1963, when I was five um, and um, JFK was assassinated, that was the first time I saw my father's shoulders shake with heaving from sobbing, uncontrolled sobbing, which was terrifying. This was a man who commanded absolute authority and respect in the house. He was in charge of us in a way that was rather tyrannical at times. He was a man that I was frequently frightened of. To see a man that you're frightened of, break down and weep when you're five years old is very scary. I said, is it the end of the world? My mother said in her very French absolutist way, yes, nobody qualified that statement. I waited for the world to end. And the emotion um, that continued in the house over the period of the uh, funeral 
just cemented in my mind that there was some hidden secret connection between Kennedy and us, and I decided, um, you know, it's a classic thing, isn't it, for children to have adoption fantasies. Mm. And so my adoption fantasy was that I was the missing secret daughter of JFK, and God knows how I'd ended up in leafy Wimbledon, but there'd been a terrible switcheroo. And I have to say, you know, I said before I had flimsy evidence, but two things were pretty compelling. Uh, JFK's wife was called Jacqueline, my mother's um name is Jacqueline, and JFK and Jackie had a daughter called Caroline, who shares my exact birth date. Now, I thought that this was incontrovertible. This was a conspiracy. It was. Yep. Quite clearly. Yeah. <laughs> and what did you do with this information, Caroline? Oh, I squirreled it away and I shared it with my best friend Antonia and we built on this conspiracy. We spied on my parents for evidence. We wrote each other long detailed notes and letters about all the evidence that we were gathering. Uh, and of course, that's when the whole episode came very seriously unstuck because my parents, who didn't have a great sense of privacy for their daughter, and their, I, they didn't have great respect for boundaries, as we would now call them, which was a completely unknown notion, I think, in terms of parenting in those days, read my copious detective work, um, and my case files, to Antonia, were horrified beyond measure. Their, their reaction was so extreme. Instead of just bursting into laughter and saying, God, what an idiot daughter we have. Mm. She's got such a fevered imagination. They were profoundly hurt. And of course, what I didn't know at the time, James, was it's all very well for children as part of their evolution to go through adoption fantasies except that my parents had lost their family and and adoption was no joke to them because in one case um, my father had been fostered, my mother had been passed around like a parcel. The idea for them of a child of theirs imagining that she didn't belong to them was profoundly wounding and so they overreacted, they punished me very severely they banned me from writing to Antonia except if the letters were read, censored, and supervised. They killed off the friendship. Um, they made me completely paranoid about my diary or any further correspondence being read. Um, it was all very, very dramatic. And it was years before I was mature enough to understand how much pain I had innocently caused them. And just that open wound is was sitting there for so many years because you had no idea of their history. You no, and never had cause to ask, I suppose. It wasn't discussed. Um, and I got a very strong sense that the atmosphere in my house was very different from that in other people's houses. So when I went to other people's houses, there was a lot of banter and joking and noise around the table and people interrupted each other. Uh, and there was a sort of lovely kind of familiarity. My house was all about manners um, and being very polite 
uh, and very respectful at the at the table in terms of how conversation was conducted. So questions were encouraged, curiosity was encouraged, but it had to be more intellectual and cerebral and focused on the news and current affairs and geography and history. Uh, you know, my father would quiz me at breakfast just about every morning and say, what date is it today? And I would say pedantically, oh, well, you know, it's the 3rd of April. And he'd say, no, but what happened today in 1784? And I'd have not a clue. And then, you know, a long lecture would ensue about something to do with a revolution or one of his heroes, Nelson or Napoleon um, or Churchill or de Gaulle, you know, <laughs> one of those um, from his pantheon. So I was fascinated by the way other families interacted. But when I got to my home, when I came back to my home, I always sort of felt that I could weigh the air as if the actual molecular structure of the oxygen in my house weighed more. And when my friends came to the house, they'd say, your parents are scary and um, we don't like it here and we don't feel comfortable. And my friends didn't want to come and play at my house. You know, there was a vibe. So how did that, how did that affect you? Well, I think in a very positive way, you know, Children learn by example, but that doesn't mean that the example has to be good or positive. You can decide in observing the way your family behaved that that is not for you. And I remember thinking that there was something very oppressive and forbidding that made people uncomfortable about being in my house. And I made a conscious decision around the age of 12 or 13 that when I had a home of my own, it would be warm, it would be welcoming, it would um, allow people to come and go with great ease, that eating would not be um, a sort of ritual with a lot of ceremony. You know, so I think I looked at my parents' marriage in the same way. I thought these people don't look to me like they're particularly compatible or uh, happy together. That's not what I want. Yes, we often learn from our parents about how to fight, but also how to love or what love is. So while in the book you detail very much the skills you adopted from passive-aggressive to, to being sulky and things like this from your, <laughs> from your mother and father, I'm interested, though, who taught you how to love then? Oh, God, James, what a question. Um, God, that's years and years and years of shrinkage, isn't it, really? <laughs> I think that is the answer. I think... I don't want to do my parents a disservice. They really smothered me with love. They cherished me. They adored me. They, um, they were so proud of me. They rewarded me. They encouraged and stimulated me. They gave me enormous opportunities. Um, so all of that was very solid. I had tremendous security in terms of knowing that they were there for me. Um, and so even though the love later, I interpreted their love as extremely controlling and based on their own fears and anxieties, knowing what could go wrong at the hand of history or domestic violence in my mother's case. So history in my father's, domestic violence in my mother's. Um, you know, having seen that that love could get corroded and could get warped. It was nonetheless there as a foundation. And then I went and found it, like a lot of only children who want siblings or who idealize other people's families, 
I sort of got myself adopted a lot <laughs> without be being explicit about it as I had been about the Kennedys. Um, so I found large, noisy, blousy, messy, chaotic families and I kind of uh, attached myself to them. And so I found a looser kind of expression of love and I could see that love didn't always have to have such strong ties, that things didn't always have to be so airless and intense. It doesn't have to be driven no. by control at all. It and allows for freedom and expression. I think, you know, you have choice and you have agency. I think one of the things that perhaps saddens me most about my mother's story is that something terrible and tragic happened to her when she was five. Um, but she made a choice, in a sense, to see the world forever afterwards through the lens of a victim. And I looked at my parents at a certain point with a degree of detachment, and I thought, that is not how I am going to live. You can reject values. You can rebel. And so in a way, you know, you've made me think about something which I've never thought about before in relation to this book. I say that I didn't rebel until I was in my 40s when I became estranged from my parents and that I was a compliant and obedient child. But actually, the rebellion was going on. It was a very, very slow simmer at a very, very low temperature. Um, it wasn't one of those kind of really, um, you know, I didn't kind of completely go off the rails and become a really bad egg. But actually, I was gathering momentum. Well, you punctuate your story with these instances of minor acts of rebellion, everything from the seven-year-old you revealing the piano, which you said is loathing at first sight. And what, what did you do to this poor old piano? <laughs> I stuffed chewing gum down it. <laughs> Yeah, I tortured it physically as much as I could. I I made my dog a small, I had a small West Highland Terrier and he could just about fit on the keyboard and I'd get him to run up and down the keys and scratch them with his um, claws. I did everything to that instrument to uh, make it suffer as I was suffering and being coerced to learn it. And then, yes, when my mother dressed me, she made me most of my clothes until I was 16. I went to a school without a uniform, a French school where how you dressed mattered a lot. So fashion became increasingly kind of competitive and a factor at school. And my mother was still dressing me as une petite fille très sage, a very little, good little girl. And at one stage, she made me wear this ghastly pale blue um, skirt that she'd made me. She just perfected the technique for knife pleats, like, you know, the back of a kilt. And I loathed this skirt. And I cut a little window <laughs> in the front panel with a pair of nail scissors. So that was the end of that. So you're right. I yeah. did, I did rebel a bit. You've always been a compulsive writer. And the first bit of publishing you ever achieved was with the Brownie newsletter. <laughs> What magazine? Did... Oh, this sorry, a magazine, I, I James. Please, <laughs> how dare! <laughs> how, what did that do for you? Was that did that give you a sense of rebellion in some way as well, uh, or just a sense of ownership? A sense of ownership, and that was absolutely a light bulb moment of electric pleasure. Um, I wrote a very sad poem. Uh, when the poem was shown by someone who knew my parents, in fact, to a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist said, 
that I was suffering from depression. I don't think I was suffering from depression. I think I was a very, very melancholy, unhappy child, but I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as depression, uh, which I have suffered from at um, later stages of life, I think. Um, and I think that depression runs in my family along with anxiety, so it's a bit of a double whammy. But um, I wrote this sad, brooding, melancholy, angsty, pre-adolescent poem. And when I saw it published, it wasn't the poem that was the satisfaction. It was seeing my name in print and thinking everything else in my house. My father kept reiterating to me that nothing belonged to me, that he had bought me everything. He'd bought me my clothes. He paid for every holiday. Nothing in the house was mine because I hadn't actually bought it. But when I saw that byline, I thought, I made that, I did that, and you can't take that away from me. And I was hooked for life. Do you still retain that sense of power when you see your byline on things? Do you still have that deep connection to its mine? Yes, I do. And I think... Um, one of the things that's very difficult for journalists about writing a book is that we're all addicted to the instant gratification of the payoff, where you write it, it's published, you get that feedback from people, you know, even before social media, people say, oh, I read your piece and, you know, I really enjoyed it, and then you'd have a bit of a conversation about it. Um, and so you'd feel you were part of a bigger sort of dialogue in the community through this um, writing experience. But of course, with a book, in my case, only took me five years to write. It should have taken two, but I was continuously being interrupted by the need to earn a living or by a wobble where I thought, who cares? You know, no one's going to want to read this. It's not making any sense to me. I'll put it away again. And there is such a long delay before the payoff that you keep going back to the short-term sugar hit of journalism because your identity reposes in that byline and it's too far away with the book. You know, five years is an age to wait for the gratification that may come with seeing your name on the cover. The choice to make to write a memoir, though, I'd like to dig into that and then we'll come back to a bit more what's in the, the book itself. You spent some time with Patty Mills, who's a very um, famous or very successful Australian memoirist. Patty Miller. Patty Miller. I, yes, oh, you might want to say that yes. again. <clears throat> <laughs> I think I've just been told. Uh, <laughs> you might want to say that again. <laughs> Can't help it. I'm used to being you. That's right. Oh, good Lord. All right, I'll start that whole Sorry. thing again. Thanks, Caroline. <laughs> good God. Um, <laughs> I'm intrigued by your choice to write a memoir. and uh, you, you spent some time with Patty Miller. You went and did one of her courses, but you had previously gone to New York and done Julia Cameron's course, which is, you know, Julia Cameron teaches fiction. I actually went um, to Patty Miller long before I went to Julia Cameron, and I only did a half-day course with Julia Cameron, who was, <laughs> when I met her, she was slightly kind of eccentrically bonkers in a rather wonderful way, but I was just in a in a class for half a day. I'd already read The Artist's Way. 
I had started doing morning pages. I didn't really completely stick to the Julia Cameron model, but the great breakthrough with Patty Miller, who I think really has a very, very solid method that many, many writers have um, benefited from and many writers have been published who've been her students, was that she um, set us an exercise in class one week, which was to go home and find an object that had some kind of talismanic power um, and write from that object, write something around that object. And I went home and I'm not a collector of things apart from books. And I just looked around and I thought, I don't have anything. There's just nothing here. And then at the back of my desk drawer one day, when I'd sort of abandoned hope of doing the exercise, I just thought I was going to skip the next week in class, um, I found the thing, the thing that was the trigger and that resonated. And it was a little uh, stiff card in a black-edged envelope, which said on the front of it, from the office of Mrs. Kennedy, I think that's what it says, and it was a reply to a letter of condolence which my parents had made me write to Mrs. Kennedy upon the assassination of JFK. Now, why, when they were the ones in mourning for JFK, they made their five-year-old daughter write the letter of condolence? God only knows. I mean, it was such a bizarre thing that they asked me to do. I think it was the first time that I wrote joined-up letters with an ink pen formally. I had no idea what I was doing. They gave me the wording. I just wrote it out. And then a number of weeks later, this little card arrived in the post. And by then, my entire very elaborate fantasy had started. And so I kept this card from 1963 safe. And so when I opened the drawer and Patty had set me this exercise that the card was just kind of, you know, it was radioactive as far as I was concerned. It was the thing that was saying to me, you have to write about this. And in a way, it's the um, keystone of the book. It's the first piece in the book that I wrote. I wrote it oh, 15 years before the rest, squirreled it away in a drawer, later published it as a standalone piece in the Good Weekend magazine, where it got a good response, which made me think, aha, okay. So writing memoir gives you a lovely kind of warm embrace of feedback. So maybe I should do some more. So I built the rest of the book, if you like, around that piece. Right. And what about, I think it was in 2013, you wrote my, you, you submitted a piece into the collection My Mother, My Father, about the, the losing of a parent. As well, yes. so have you been putting together these building blocks that have led you towards this entire memoir? Well, that's a very good way of putting it. Yes. So, um, Patty Miller's method and Sue Wolf's method and many other um, life writing teachers do um, suggest and recommend that you not worry too much about writing in a linear or a chronological fashion. Basically, that you create a patchwork, and you don't worry about the sequence. You just make the squares of your patchwork and then when you've made the patchwork squares, you decide on how you're going to join them together and what kind of pattern you're going to make. I know that that's not how some patchworks are created. They're created with a much um, stronger sort of 
sense from the beginning of the pattern. But I'm just using the patchwork analogy in terms of um, writing a bit of this and writing a bit of that and not worrying too much about where they're going to belong. And in fact, the first manuscript, the first draft of Only was completely back to front. I had a much more elaborate idea that I wanted to use a series of flashbacks. I wanted the reader to jump backwards and forwards in time. We started with my father's collapse into dementia almost overnight. So he didn't have Alzheimer's. He had vascular dementia, which is far more rapid a deterioration, far more shocking and brutal uh, because there's no time to prepare for it. Um, so I started with that very, very dramatic opening of my father destroyed really and mad like King Lear, one of his favorite um, heroes from Shakespeare, mad on the heath. Um, and I had a really fantastic first reader, Chris Olson, a formidable memoir writer herself, whose memoir Boy Lost I absolutely adore. And she said to me, well, Caro, it's a powerful beginning, but we don't know who your father is and we don't know who you are. And so we're not sufficiently emotionally invested or engaged here. Try flipping it around. And um, and I did. And I, I eventually adopted a more sequential, more linear, traditional um, uh, shape for the book, partly because I felt as a beginner that I should stick to a formula that was tried and true and that I should um, modify my ambitions and be realistic about the limitations of my own talent. You know, you, you, your first book, you write with trainer wheels on, and it doesn't matter that I've been a journalist for 30 years. This is all about going from being a sprinter to being a marathon runner. I did not know if I could get to 80,000 words, and the only way I could do it was by tricking myself and writing pieces which were 2,000 words, 3,000 words, 4,000 words, as if they were individually commissioned features. So I imagined that I had a, an ideal commissioning editor at a magazine, like, say, The Good Weekend, in my head, and that she was asking me to write these pieces, because that was the only way I could motivate myself, was to use the structure and the habits of journalism to go from being a sprinter to being a marathoner. You've previously been reinterpreted into fiction by Thomas Keneally. Oh, and <laughs> oh God, you really have done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> and you took issue with it at the time because of how he perhaps didn't um, protect you enough, the fact that you felt you could be seen in, the, in that story. So I'm interested why then, what changed in the years between the publishing of that book, The Tyrant's Novel, and then deciding to reveal everything in this memoir? Well, I mean, I think I overreacted to Tom's uh, depiction of me. You know, that was a stupid episode, stupid on my part, not stupid on his. Um, he came with me to Villawood, to the detention centre, because I wanted him to meet a detainee who had told me, a doctor, an Iraqi doctor, who had told me that his favourite book was Schindler's List. And when I told him that it had been written by an Australian, he didn't believe me. And I said, will you believe me if I bring him? <laughs> and uh, he said, okay. So I rang Tom up and I said, 
I need you to come with me to Villawood, and I suspect that you're going to want to come anyway, because this Iraqi doctor has one hell of a story. And of course Tom wanted to come. Tom was deeply concerned about um, our refugee policy, and like any great writer, he could sniff out material with a truffle nose. He knew he was onto a good thing. Uh, he came to visit the Iraqi doctor, who was gobsmacked. He was completely gobsmacked. Um, and they formed a friendship and a relationship which was completely independent of me, so that I no longer needed to accompany Tom. He went back to see this doctor by himself repeatedly. Um, when he told me that he had written a novel and that um, I was in it, he rang me as a courtesy and said, would you like to have a look at what I've done? I was deeply flattered. I mean, can you imagine being turned into a character in a Tom Canini novel? You just think, oh my God. So uh, I was in the car. He rang me and said, shall I send you the pages um, in, in which you're depicted, you know, just as a courtesy. And I said, no need. You know, I'm sure whatever you've done is completely fabulous. How could I mind or object to anything? And then I did see what he'd done. And I thought that he he made me feel slightly awkward with a certain kind of physical description of me, which I thought was overly flattering. I overreacted to it. I wrote a piece for the Sydney Morning Herald about how awkward this experience was, which of course was a dumb thing to do because it only drew more attention to the fact, whereas if I hadn't done that, James, no one would have been any the wiser. Nobody cared. Nobody knew it was me. Nobody could recognize me. I did write a piece which did go to the broader issue of writers basing characters on real life people. Um, I talked to Helen Garner. I talked to the playwright Hanny Rayson, who had also used me as the basis for a character in a play of hers called, um, oh, what was that play called? Grace. I think it was called Grace. Anyway, so I, I just wanted to canvas the issue of the very interesting alchemy that seems to go on in writers' minds where when they take material from a person that they know, part of the process of the taking seems to... Um, trigger a convenient kind of amnesia where they do actually forget the origin of the character that they've created. There seems to be some sort of necessary blanking that goes on there. I don't know quite why. Um, but yes, yeah, so I wrote this piece and I made a fuss about it. And poor Tom was absolutely mortified uh, and wrote to me and apologized and it's completely fine, and everything is good between us, um, and I'm very fond of him, and also, of course, a huge admirer of him. Um, and but did that, did that strengthen you? Did that change your opinion and, and allow you to perhaps become more open to, to writing a memoir years later? Well, my theory about memoir is, look, if you're going to do it, you have to do it 100%. You are creating a unique bond of trust with a reader. In order for that bond of trust to sustain 300 pages, you cannot gild the lily. You cannot only tell stories that are going to make you look good. You have to be prepared to expose yourself. Um, the memoirs that I cherish, whether it's Robert Desai or Magda Zubansky or Richard Glover, um, or preeminent for me, 
is the American memoirist Mary Carr, whose book The Liars Club gave me courage over and over again. Whenever I relented, whenever I was quaking in my boots and thinking, I can't go there, I can't tell that story against myself, I would put my hands metaphorically in the socket of Mary Carr's electricity and I would get a zap from her and I would go straight from reading The Liars Club back to my computer and I was charged enough to have the courage to write whichever bit it was that really scared me. The reason we don't like um, political memoirs is we know that we're being lied to by people who are revisionists, who are trying to make themselves look good, and who are justifying all sorts of things that are unjustifiable. I needed my reader to trust me, to go all the way with me. I've heard you say that you were very aware of making sure this wasn't about recovery writing. But I want to ask, though, perhaps, what about recovery reading? Did this allow other people around you to have a greater sense of, that makes sense, now I understand more about who you are and what's <laughs> defined you? Well, I have to say that's been one of the most pleasurable uh, discoveries of this experience, yes. There's a writer in Australia, I'm not going to name her, but there's a writer with whom I've always had a sort of awkward relationship where we've tried really hard to like each other so many times and we just keep missing and misunderstanding each other. And I've seen her kind of mentally roll her eyes and go, oh, God, Caroline, you are just such a piece of work. And... Um, she turned up at my book launch. I hadn't invited her um, because she doesn't live in Sydney, but there she was. And she came towards me with this beautiful smile on her face. And she said to me, Caro, I've read your book and now I understand. You are from another planet. And from that time on, we have had the friendship that we've always tried to have, but never managed because she's in a sense forgiven me for being me. She's made the allowances that my friends back in England, who knew me from longer ago, were able to make because they had met my parents and they had seen what I was up against. Whereas here in Australia, the problem is that I came here at 24. Most people did not know why I was the way I was, why I was so princessy, why I was the only child I was. Um, so they made no allowances for me. And I think that one of the things that I've learned about memoir is that I did write this in a sense to be understood. I did not write it to be liked, but there is something deeply, deeply rewarding about someone getting you, someone knowing what the component parts are that made you this awkward person that you are. And I think when I came to Australia um, in 1984, I was almost instantly pigeonholed, categorized, and not so much misunderstood, but I was stereotyped and it was very much to do with my voice and my way of speaking. And so um, certain powers that be, certainly at the ABC, when I joined the broadcaster, thought that I was too posh. Um, and it would never have occurred to them that actually English is my second language, that I went to a French school, that I learned to read and write in French first. Um, and that like many migrants and children of migrants, I learned to speak this way as a result of that 
migrant experience in my parents' case. Um, nobody asked me anything about my background. They just heard me and they judged me. And so in a way, this book is a kind of act of defiance of saying, you got me wrong. And maybe now you can understand that I'm much more than this posh voice. That goes also to a chapter in the book about my desperate, desperate need to go to Oxford. I wanted my parents to have a sense of belonging to the establishment. I wanted them to feel that the sacrifices they'd made and all the hardship in their life and all the privation in their life meant that their daughter had achieved what they wanted for her, which was um, a high level of success and a high level of integration into the things that were the sort of pillars of British society. And for my father, that meant Oxford. I signed up for that dream 150%. I sabotaged the dream through another act of willful stupidity. Um, it was a very painful moment. It meant that when I went to work at the BBC, which at that point, um, in terms of its recruitment, recruited almost exclusively from Oxbridge, I was able to rescue that desire to be part of the British establishment at the very last moment. And it meant a tremendous amount to me and to my father. Well, your parents were quite enamoured with fame as well. And I'm interested by this because being famous means you have to give up a level of control. So if you were to be famous or if they were to be famous, they would have to share you with other people. But that's not how they saw it. I think that they had a very peculiar, warped sense that somehow fame and celebrity might be a form of insurance that could protect you from the buffer. It could be a buffer. Fame and celebrity could be a protective coating, like a buffer, that would shield you from the turbulence of history. And they invested a lot of faith in um, wealth, security, and fame. And they liked proximity or association with fame, even in a kind of secondhand way, staying where famous people stayed. Um, recognizing famous people in the street or in a restaurant meant that by association they were somehow in the right place. None of this really, um, I never really quite worked it out until I was writing only and then I had this kind of aha moment where I looked at the trajectory of my life and thought that's why I went to work for Michael Parkinson, that's why I went to work for Melvin Bragg, that's why I've spent a lifetime interviewing people who are at the peak and the pinnacle of their career because I bought into the idea that fame was a currency that was uh, more secure than any other kind of currency and that proximity to people who were famous uh, endowed you with a degree of protection from all the uncertainties of life. It was a crazy notion. I am no longer captive to it, uh, but it did inform the choices that I made about my career. There's no doubt about it. This brings me back to your refrigerator and 1980. <laughs> it's 
specifically because we're talking about fame and your parents' desire to be near it, and they couldn't have been any closer <laughs> than that day in 1980 you returned from university and opened the refrigerator. So to finish, tell me what was in that refrigerator and who it was connected to. Ah, okay. So I came back from university, I opened the fridge, and everything in the fridge was really peculiar. Um, there was a lot of cabbage, there was beetroot, herrings, sour cream, um, little sort of pastries filled with more cabbage, actually, now that I think about it. And um, I kind of looked at my mother and said, you know, what the hell is going on here? Um, and it turned out that my mother, uh, as a mature age student, she hadn't had the benefit of a proper education in Paris because of the tragic circumstances that disrupted her life. Um, had enrolled as a mature age student to study Russian at London University, and she had sort of fallen in love with her main Russian tutor, and to all intents and purposes adopted him in every way but legally. She'd rescued him from the hovel where he was living um, without hot water or heating, and she'd brought him into our home, which was a completely uncharacteristic thing for her to do, given that our home was not social and it was not an open house. And she kind of just informed my father that Vitya was now going to be living with us full time. And Vitya, unknown to us, unbeknownst to us, Vitya was connected to the most extraordinary network of some of the most highly regarded Soviet artists, both in film, dance, music and theatre. And so when those Soviet artists managed to get out of the Soviet Union um, on an official tour, um, they would often uh, escape the supervision and surveillance of their KGB minders and come and spend an evening and have dinner with Vitya in Wimbledon, and my mother would cook a lavish meal for them. And then this kind of escalated, and these people would get away from their KGB minders and they would be sitting at dinner, and in the middle of dinner, they would suddenly say, well, I'm going to seek political asylum here. I'm going to defect while I'm here, and your house is basically going to be my safe house. And so for 10 years before Perestroika, uh, my parents found themselves unwittingly running a safe house in London for prominent Soviet defectors and their friends, and the most famous, I suppose, you would say, of the friends who rocked up one evening uh, <laughs> to visit Vitya was Mikhail Baryshnikov, who was making a film in London at the time called White Nights. And sometimes in the course of that shoot, he would turn up with a balalaika or a large pot of caviar. Once, he, once or twice, actually, no, regularly, he turned up with his co-star, Isabella Rossellini. Um, once he came to dinner with his... Um, co-star Greg Hines. I mean, this was this created such chaos and bedlam in my parents' very stiff and rigid and orderly and rather solemn home. So suddenly, um, everything was changed. Meals no longer happened at seven thirty promptly. They could have dinner could be on the table at midnight. Um, the house was full of noise, um, a lot of laughter a lot of crying, an enormous amount of melodrama. There was one um, Soviet theatre director who said to my father, would you mind if I went upstairs to your study to make a phone call? My father never lent his study to anybody. I wasn't allowed to go into it. 
He said to Yuri Lyubimov, this very distinguished theatre director, of course, be my guest. Yuri went upstairs. Well, it turned out that he'd called the Kremlin, asked to be put through to the president of the Soviet Union at the time, uh, Yuri Andropov, to inform Mr. Andropov personally that he was seeking asylum in the UK. These were his terms. And if Mr. Andropov did not comply, he would not be coming home. This was going on 24-7. Your, ha- your house is literally negotiating with Russia at yeah. this point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and the fact that you end with MI5 and the KGB sitting out your house and your phones are tapped for the next three years. Yes, and that's why that chapter is called The Cold War, because it is the end of the Cold War and it is played out through the contents of the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Caroline. Only is a wonderful read. It's it's very personal. It's a very impressive piece of writing. And it's compelling and it makes you cry, but it certainly makes you laugh as well. And oh, I'm just so pleased you shared it with us. Well, it's my pleasure to share it. And thank you, James, for asking such searching and perceptive questions, even if they made me squirm a bit. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming in, Caroline. Thank you. And Caroline's memoir only is in stores and online right now. You can also follow Caroline on Instagram and you can follow us on Twitter at ConversationsWW. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.